and uh, Dinesh. Dinesh is going to read the passage verse. Thanks. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 11 to 20 can be found on page 505 of your pew Bibles. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, Let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Thanks be to God for his word. Thank you, uh, Dinesh. Let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And I pray this morning that as we open this word and as we study it together as your people, uh, Father, that your Holy Spirit will help us to understand it and uh, give us attentive hearts, responsive hearts, uh, to accept your word, Lord. And I pray for myself that you forgive me of my sins and that you would be pleased, Lord, to bless um, the message this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, have you ever been challenged to do something really daring in your life? Really challenged to do, to do something daring. For example, to uh, do a bungee jump. Have you ever done that? No? Mm. Anyone done it? Oh, I see one hand in the back there. That's good. Right. I'm sure it must have been an exhilarating feeling experience. Or maybe to do the, the giant big drop uh, in Dream World. Anyone done that one? I'm sh- no? Come on, I see a few hands up there. You see, this year when we were in Queensland, we went up there and uh, went on this on the big drop. And believe it or not, friends, well, just before we went, this this big drop thing it got stuck right in the middle, and we could see people their feet dangling all over the place. I thought to myself, "Wow!" And I'm in line to go next. I said to Sean, "I don't think we're going to go up there, man. No way." Anyway, we took the step of faith and we went up and we came down well. So that was good. But I felt for those other people who were stuck up there, just in the middle there. 
their feet dangling and not knowing what's going to happen. What a challenge. Well, what about the challenge for those who are doing BCE this year? Uh, you have a challenge before you, or IB, and uh, I'm sure it's going to be a real couple of challenging weeks, weeks ahead of you as well in your studies. So life is filled with challenges. I wonder whether you saw the news recently of a Victorian mother who has told how she is grateful to be alive after surviving a near-fatal illness that left her a quadruple amputee. Did you see that news item? Mandy McCracken of Kilmore lost both her hands and part of her legs after her entire body was affected, was attacked by a serious infection commonly known as Strep A. Now, I did some research. I'm not a doctor, but I was trying to find out what this thing is, and I'm still learning about it, but you can talk to the medical experts, and they will tell you more about it. Strep A. I mean, just eight weeks ago, apparently, she was, well, she was an everyday mom of three little girls with a loving husband, and uh, you can see the photos online. And uh, this is what she said. I actually said to myself, you Mandy is now adjusting to life without limbs, but says she's just happy to be here. I mean, imagine that. And she said this, I actually said to myself, you're alive. This is fabulous. Who cares about these little things? You're alive and you're going to see your kids grow up. And that's what should count. I could be sad, but I'll be happy and go forward. When I saw that news item with Rose, I said to her, wow, what an amazing woman she is. I recorded that news item because I wanted to show it to our kids and to show them and to remind them of when challenges come our way. I don't know who this lady is, never met her. But here is a woman who is saying, I could be sad, but I'll be happy and go forward. No arms, no legs. You see, life is filled with challenges. We all have those challenges, right? Maybe health issues, maybe financial issues, maybe personal issues, maybe emotional issues, maybe psychological issues, mental issues. There are pressures and challenges that come our way. Life is filled with challenges. And so when challenges come our way, we can do one of two things. Uh, we can either sit back and do nothing, or we can take up the challenges and face them. Is that clear? You can either sit back and say, wow, that's a challenge. I'm just going to just let it go over me. Or you can say, I'm going to take this challenge and I'm going to run with it. Because challenges presents opportunities. And opportunities are when God opens doors for God's people to achieve great things for him. And so when challenges come, what do we do? Well, this morning, we continue our study in the book of Nehemiah. And today we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 11 to chapter 2 and verse 18. So I would want to encourage you, because we are studying God's word together. I must say this, when a preacher is preaching, it's always hard to get the attention of everyone, because I can see all of you, you can see me and 
Well, we're trying to communicate something, and it's always, that's a challenge. I can tell you that. That's one of the challenges for preachers. So we're going to look at God's Word together, because I want us to study this Word together, so that together we will grow in Christ, love our God, and serve Him with the challenges that come our way. Okay. So, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11, to chapter 2, and verse 18. Well, friends, Nehemiah chapter 1, uh, and verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him, I put that Nehemiah there in, in brackets, mercy in the sight of this man, pronounce his name, however you want it, Artraxus or whatever. And now I was cupbearer to the king. Alright, cupbearer to the king. Did you notice Nehemiah's job? What was his job? He was a cupbearer to the king. Now it doesn't mean that he walked around with a cup. Or, or, or was the waiter where he poured wine into cups? I don't think that was his job. He's in charge of the security, and particularly the security of the king. And he would be considered perhaps the head of security in, 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 our, in today's world. He was in charge of the personal security of King Art Axerus, right? He was part of the inner circle. And some say that the cupbearer was the third or fourth man in power. And this would mean that Nehemiah, being cupbearer, would go out and would secure the best wine. The best wine for the king. Like the Penfolds Grange or something like that. Now, I don't know much of the good wines, but I know some people here in this congregation who, love, who know and they love their particular wines, Right? Maybe it was the best wines that he would go and he would secure the best wine for the king. And so he would have tasted some of the best wines at the time. And, and he would also run the winery for the kingdom and, and the storage of, of wine in, 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 in the place. And then he would sample the wine before the king drank it. Imagine that, sampling the best wine. And he was responsible not simply for sipping the wine, but to make sure that the king was not poisoned. And if the wine was poisoned, man, guess what? The cupbearer is gone. The cupbearer is gone. Ooh, the top job comes with a price. <laughs> the top job does come with a price, and the price of your life. Do you want to be a cupbearer to the king? Don't think so. Anyway. So Nehemiah holds a very important position where the king's life, the most important man in that nation, is literally contingent on the execution of Nehemiah doing his job well. He's a powerful man. The king trusted his life with Nehemiah. But Nehemiah was also Jewish. And so, friends, here is a Jewish man who loved the Lord, Born in exile, serving a pagan king. And he stands out. And I think of Old Testament characters who were well-respected leaders serving foreign kings. Think of people. Give me a name. Joseph. Moses. Think about that. Moses was a man who, who honored God. Was, he rose in the court of Egypt. Joseph the most was a respected man in the courts of Egypt, became the prime minister in Egypt. Three other guys in the book of Daniel. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, maybe it's just another guy. Uh, 
Bendigo, Abednego. <laughs> good one, good one. Well, don't worry about that because I call it Bendigo as well. Abednego, right? Okay, here were these guys. They stood out. All these men were respected in the world. And we have women as well in the Bible who stood out. We have men and women. Let me not forget the women who stood out as well. Right? And they, these people, all these men and women respected the world of unbelief because of the stature of their life under the eye of God. When God's people live for him, the unbelieving world notices it. And how much, my dear friends, we need Christian men and women to take on leadership roles in this world to influence the cause of Christ in this world. So those of you who are preparing for your exams, we see exams, IB exams. My encouragement to you is to do your utmost best for Christ. I mean, God opens opportunities for you that you will be men and women of influence and of integrity for God in this world. Don't you think so? We need men and women like that. You see, Abraham Kuyper, fantastic Dutch theologian and prime minister, this is what he said, whatever man may stand, whatever he may do, to whatever he may apply his hand in agriculture, in commerce, and in industry, or his mind, in the world of art and science, he is, in whatsoever it may be, constantly standing before the face of God. He is employed in the service of his God. He has strictly to obey his God. And above all, he has the aim at the glory of his God. That's what it is. Now, Nehemiah was such a man, a man of influence. Leadership could be characterized or could be summed up I know there are lecturers, people who do lectures here on leadership. I know Dinesh uh, lectures a lot on leadership. I think one of the words that we can summarize leadership is the word influence. The, the leader influences. And Nehemiah was a man who brought about an influence. This cupbearer, Nehemiah, whose name means the Lord has comforted, was a man, a man of vision. He saw the big picture. Do you see the big picture in life? When your child is born, the little baby, we see, I saw Rob holding little Luke, probably gone to the cry room. Someone joked with me about my office being the cry room. Well, friends, it has been the cry room for me as well. <laughs> right? It's good that it's been used that way now. But anyway, when we see this baby... And what do you think when you get this baby and, and this new life and you hold this baby in your, in your arms? What a wonderful privilege. And then suddenly you start looking at the big picture, isn't it? Oh, here's the little baby. Now I have the big picture in front of me. Where is this child going to be? What's this child going to do? How is this child going to live his or her life for Christ? And you suddenly start looking at the bigger picture things. And so this man was a visionary. He thought about the big picture things. Do you think about the big picture idea in your life? Where is God leading me? This man was a man of prayer. He prayed. He was a man who was proactive and not reactive. He was proactive in putting plans and preparations in place for the work that was ahead. You see, we can react to things, 
but we ought to be proactive. If you are in the business world, you would be proactive, would you not? If you are a company executive, you would be proactive in, in seeing as to how you're going to take this company from one level to the other. There was a massive discussion this past week with the CEO of David Jones resigning. And they discussed this whole issue on the news about the succession plan. Now, I don't, uh, I'm not a fairly David Jones customer because I can't afford some of their things, but I don't mind going and having a look around. And if there's a bargain, $50 comes down to 5 bucks, I might buy it. Doesn't come that way, but anyway. The point is this. You see, the, if you're in that position, you'll be looking at the big picture. If you're in, in your workplace, in your home, you'll be looking at what kind of vision? Are you being proactive in this? And he was also a man of faith, where he trusted in implicitly in this God. And so, this is the book. This is the kind of guy that Nehemiah was. And we are so in this second study of Nehemiah, covering today also chapter 2. And so, we read in chapter 2, 1 and 4, in the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Arthraxus, when wine was before him, I took up the wine. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 4 in your Bibles. I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad? Seeing you are not sick, this is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting me? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Keep your Bibles open there, please. Now go back for a moment with me to 445 BC. It's the month of March. That is the month of Nisan. It's the end of March and it spills over into April. It's currently 1,000 years since Moses had led his people out of Egypt and led Israel into the promised land. It's almost 600 years since King David ruled, and then when the kingdom was divided, the people sinned against God, and in fulfillment of his word, judgment was brought upon the people. God raised the Babylonians, attacked the city of Jerusalem, they took many into exile. Jerusalem was a prominent, important city because it was connected to God's name and his reputation on earth. It is where God's people lived and worshipped the Lord. And they were to be a city that shone brightly for God. And when the Babylonians came in, they destroyed the wall, they destroyed the gates. Nebuchadnezzar did this all. We see this in the scriptures. And now almost 200 years later, the walls are still down, the gates are burned, nothing has happened. When Nehemiah hears this, what does he do? What does he do in Nehemiah chapter 1? I don't expect you to remember a sermon two weeks ago, alright? I don't expect you to do that. But look at your scriptures. Chapter 1, Nehemiah did something, friends. He was emotionally distraught. He was broken. He was devastated. He weeps. He moans. He fasts. And he prays. And the question is, why was he so concerned about the walls and the gates of Jerusalem? I want us to keep this in mind somehow, all right? Why? Surely someone might say this morning, Chris, that's crazy. Who cares about walls? I mean, 
do you really care about walls? Do you really care about gates? Maybe you, we do. I'm not saying we don't, but really, I mean, what's the big deal? They're just gates and walls. What's the purpose? I believe that the entire purpose is not just to rebuild the walls. This is important for us to remember. But the people in the city, which we see in Nehemiah chapters 8 to 13, the building project is designed to rebuild the people, to bring back the worship, to bring back praise to God, and to bring back the witness of God. That's what it is about. It is a means to an end. It's not an end to itself. And the project begins to take shape. This is how it begins. Chapter 1 verse 11, I will read that. We already seen that. Nehemiah had been praying for success with the king. And now he acts. Chapter 2, 1 and 2. He comes before the king, bringing the wine. It's all set. There's a problem, friends. What's the problem? He comes and stands before the king. Is he chirpy? Is he saying to the king, good, good evening, king. Great to see you and the queen seated here. Yes, the wine, taste it. It's the best wine. No. He comes there and his face, his face is sad. You see, the, our faces tells the, tell the story, don't they? Don't they? Um, well, some people tell me I'm an open book. Then certainly my, some of the family would say, oh, we can see it on your face, Chris. What's the problem? Some of you who are close to me, they'll look at me and say, Chris, what's going on? Our faces tell the story at times. If you're carrying a burden that is too much to bear, it might be seen on our faces. We feel downcast and heavy burden, our face can reflect it. For some, it is more obvious than for others. And it says that the king looked at him and said, why are you so sad? Why is your face sad? Imagine that. You go in front of the king and he says, why is, why is your face so sad? Hey, Nehemiah, you're not normally like this. There's something up. Something's wrong. What's up? What's up, Nehemiah? You're not sick. This is nothing to do with sadness of the heart. But, but it's, it's nothing but sadness of the heart. And the king gets to the heart of the problem. What's wrong with your heart? Amazing. A pagan king is saying, what's wrong with your heart? Because your heart is showing itself in, its, in your face. It's sad. And he speaks to the king about his troubles. Chapter 2, 3 and 4. I said to the king, you can see that for yourself. And then, friends, notice what the king says. He says, what are you requesting? What do you want? What do you want? What are you requesting? Well, Nehemiah did something. So I prayed to God. Now, look at this. He's in front of the king. Try and picture it. He's there. He's got a sad face. King is asking him, what do you want? And then he prays. Do you think that Nehemiah actually got on his knees and prayed? I don't think so. Did he give a long congregational prayer? I don't think so. Right? He gave one of those arrow prayers. Some, some writer has called it a telegraph prayer. It goes straight. You're standing in front of somebody. Perhaps you've gone for an interview. Anyone? Yeah, sure, you've gone for job interviews. You're sitting there all oh, nervous and your stomach's churning and everything's happening. 
and the guy is questioning you, or the lady is questioning you, and suddenly you think, oh, I'll give an arrow prayer to God. The Lord, please be with me. Help me. Right? And he does, and Nehemiah is here, and he shoots this arrow prayer to the God who owns the universe. He's exercising faith in this God. And so, friends, I want to encourage us this morning to be men and women of prayer. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. See, the Bible tells us this. Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. There is no doubt that God has moved the king's heart. And Nehemiah comes up with three requests. Three requests. One is the imperial authority. The first request, you can read about that in verses 5 and 6. Let him send me to the city in Judah. So he's asking for authority. That's the first request. Then the second request is for imperial protection. We see that in verses 7 to 9b in your text. If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors. And the third request is quite a challenging one as well. It says it's an imperial grant. So three requests, imperial authority, imperial protection, imperial grants, where he says, can you give me timber? I want wood. And then Nehemiah says, more than that, I want wood also to build my residence. How's that, right? And everything is given. And Nehemiah does not take credit for this. Do you think he takes credit for it? No. Because in chapter 2, verse 8b, he says, Because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. Do you see that? Our God is able to do and to answer our prayers more than we can ever imagine. Because his hand is upon our lives. Do you believe that this morning? That the gracious hand of God is upon your life. Have you thanked him for that? When is the last time, friends, that you and I got on our knees and thanked God that in his grace and in his mercy and in his providence that his gracious hand has been upon your life? Have you not seen it? Have you not experienced it? I see quite a few heads nodding this morning. Have you not seen the gracious hand of God guiding you step by step and moment by moment, day by day, when the burden is heavy, when your, when your tears are rolling down and God's hand is upon you? Have you not seen it? You see, our God is a powerful God. He never lets his people down. That's the God that we believe in. The God of all Awesomeness. It was not because, Nehemiah is saying, it's not because the king knew him or anything else. It was because the hand of God's providence was upon Nehemiah and through this to the Lord's people. And as Nehemiah continues to do this, friends, as sure as can happen in ministry and in gospel work, there is somehow Nehemiah is facing an opposition. There is rising opposition in the surrounding areas and it comes from two guys, and we'll talk about that next week. Sanballat, new name for anyone who wants to 
name their child Sanballat <laughs> or Tobiah, right? Sanballat. Anyway, more about these two guys next time. And Nehemiah is facing opposition. It begins. It begins to start. It begins to take shape. It begins with the stirrings behind. And it's going to take, it's going to intensify. This of, this, this kind of thing is going to intensify as we work through the book. You see, Nehemiah then goes on a fact-finding missions. You can read about that in verses 11, uh, to, uh, to the end there. And then he goes, and then he looks at, uh, at, at, at what is going on. Right, Nehemiah chapter 2, he came to the governors, the province. He, he uh, starts looking at what needs to be done. And then he looks at the gates. And uh, I can't point out every single gate here, but if you can look at the diagram. If you want a copy of this, you can, uh, you, you can ask me. And then we have the gates mentioned, Fountain Gate. I was thinking about Fountain Gate Shopping Center for a moment. I'm sure he didn't get the name from here. But you have all the Dung Gate, the Fountain Gate, everything that is mentioned here. Right? Nehemiah goes around, he examines the place, he sees what is going on, he sees that the gates are, are, are broken, it's damaged here. You, you have the dung gate, for example, that's mentioned here. There's the other gates that's around the corner there as well. So you see this, what's going on. And what does Nehemiah do when he sees this? He says, then I said to them, verse 17, the Jews, the nobles, the priests, those who were going to do the work, you see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins, its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. You see, Nehemiah doesn't point the finger by saying, You, but he says, We, come, let us build. He gives them the picture of the state they were in. He gives them the mission. He gives them the vision. And what was the response of the people, friends? And I told them of the hand of my God, who had been upon me for good, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, what did they say? Hey? Oh, come on, come on, let's read it. What did they say? Aha. Uh-huh. Oh, Nehemiah, good work, man. Why don't you rise up and build it yourself? Did he say that? No. Let us rise up and build. Why? Why? The work is not about Nehemiah. The work in this church is not about myself or whoever the minister might be now or in the future. I'm here now. (laughs) Uh, whoever that might be, it's, it's not about us. It's never about us. Never should it be about John or myself or anyone else here. You see, Nehemiah could have taken the, the, the easy option. Right? You know what he could have done? He could have lived in the king's presence. He could have been the cupbearer. He could have sipped the best wine. Or lived the luxurious life and said, Oh, you poor Jews. I just feel for you guys. But you know what? I'm comfy up here. See you later. (laughs) No, no. A good leader, leadership sees things and rises to the occasion and says, we must rise and build. 
because you see J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer says this. It's an excellent book, actually, that Packer has written. You see, before I get to Packer, he says, let me say this, you see. Nehemiah proceeded, not for selfish gain. He could have lived comfortably in the king's palace. Why was Nehemiah so concerned he could have lived the life? He was concerned because of the word of God and for God's glory. The point is this, friends. He was looking at the big picture, as I referred to, because nothing is too hard for God. Yes? I'm glad I heard amen to that. Nothing is too hard for God. Amen. Right? And nothing is too big for God. You see, Nehemiah prayed. He planned. He worked with the people. And he moved to action. He cared for the present. But he also cared for the hopes of the future. He cared about his heritage. He cared about his ancestral city. He cared about the glory of God. You see, I asked you the question, friends. Something that you as a congregation need to work at. What is your vision for St. Stephen's in five years' time? Something that the leadership of this church has to consider. Where would they want to see this congregation in five years' time? Where would they, under God's grace, want to see this church in ten years' time? Is that a vision? Is that a mission? Think about it. You think about it. See, Nehemiah, uh, J.I. Packer says this. What does this mean for the church today? And it's an excellent book. And I read this and I thought about these things. He says this. Let us note, Jerusalem is a picture of the Christian churches generally in the modern West. Weakness, disillusionment, and the melting away of adherence is the story everywhere. Overall, the Western church has shriveled and shrunk. It has been for the past ceased to count as a community force. And he says this, the church appears as a ruined city, like Beirut after the fighting, and like Jerusalem as Nehemiah found it. And a tremendous rebuilding job awaits anyone who still cares about its welfare. Do you? Do you care for the welfare of the church? Do you care for the welfare of the gospel? Friends, let me close by saying that God sent his son into this world because he loved his people. He sent his son to die on the cross for you so that ultimately we're not looking at this church here on earth. We are looking for a heavenly body of people, that when we die because of our faith in Jesus, we will be in where? In heaven, with the saints in glory, the new Jerusalem. And that's what Christ did. He hung on a cross. He gave his life. And every day, every day, friends, I want to encourage you to look at the cross of Christ. And to preach the gospel to yourself. Because the more and more I look at the cross of Christ, I see my own sin. And I see God's amazing grace. That he takes a sinner like me and puts me in front of you. I was sharing, I had dinner yesterday with, with, at a 
at a party last night, and I was saying to the person next to me, I said, I never would have expected to stand in front of people and talk. I, I, I've run a mile. And yet God has put this guy from nowhere, from some obscure place, way back in Colombo, a long way to Surrey Hills. Here I am. You see, we're here to serve. So may I encourage you, friends, to think about what Christ has done for you. To rejoice and to trust in the omnipotence of our God. Because by his grace and through his power, great things can be achieved by his grace. Do you believe that? What's your vision of God? Think about it. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are our God. Forgive us for our sins. Help us to...